Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's no helicopter rescue. There's no phone signal. We have no sat phone. There's nothing. And it felt so far out there. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 48 with Nick Bullock. Nick is a world-class climber, alpinist and mountaineer who in 2017 won the PLA Door, which is uh, the Oscars of mountaineering. Nick is also a celebrated author and has had articles, thoughts and stories published in pretty much every climbing and adventure publication worth its salt. I've known Nick for almost 10 years and we've worked together on multiple occasions, uh, often dangling on skinny ropes on the north face of Ben Nevis in the middle of winter. I've always enjoyed chatting with Nick, usually late at night over a glass of red wine in a snowline valley somewhere, and Nick and our conversations were one of the original inspirations for starting this podcast. Nick spends most of his time living in his van, but we recorded this conversation in a house he was looking after for a friend in the hills above Lamberis in North Wales. It was a moody, gloomy day, and the rain pattered down on the glass roof above us, uh, a perfect setting for Nick to tell us the tale of his attempted ascent of Mount Gonga in China. So it's a rainy day in North Wales. Yeah. Sat with Nick Bullock. And we're going to have a talk about what we're we talking about, Mount Gonga. So, to, uh, okay, yeah. Are we specifically talking about Mount Gonga? Well, what do you want to talk about? Talk about anything. Talk about the world in general, if you want. But I think that's a bad idea. The world according to Bullock. <laughs> Let's talk about Mount Gonga. I don't think the world according to Bullock would be very good. Really. So we've done this a few times before, but can you just tell me? For those who don't know, or can you give me a little bit of background info? Who are you? What do you do? I know you hate the question. <laughs> um, right, well, uh, what? who am I? I've no idea, really. Who am I? <laughs> um, I uh, I've been full-time climbing for fifteen last 15 years of my life. I'm writing since 2000 so I've had two books published so I suppose you could say I'm an author and um, yeah I'm a full-time climber really but I'm basically just a climbing bum I wouldn't I would certainly not call myself an athlete and I wouldn't call myself a professional climber I'm just somebody who likes to go climbing and I write so very briefly how have you ended up living the life you live now? How did you get here? Uh, how did I get here? I left school at 16. I did various jobs 
and at 21 I joined the prison service um, and at about 20, I don't know, several years later I became a PE instructor in the prison service. Um, I found climbing when I did that, I was about 28 years old and um, I carried on in the prison service as a PE instructor until I was 37, nearly 38 years old when I resigned and paid my mortgage off on my house. My house is rented out uh, and I, I left the prison service and just went no fixed abode, full-time climbing really. Thought it would last for two years and I've now, it was quite a turning point actually on in China because it was the point where I'd been full-time climbing and writing for as long as I was a, in the prison service. So just over 15 years now, so yeah. And can you give me a little bit of expedition history? Expedition history, 1997 was my first expedition to India and the Meru Sharksfin. Um, <laughs> first expedition to Meru Sharksfin, that's laughable isn't it? Uh, it just shows you kind of, <laughs> when you first start doing these things you haven't got a bloody clue. And so that was my first expedition. Ten months later, I went to Pakistan and tried to run climb mountain next to K2 called Savoya Kangri, 7,300 metres. Nearly did it. Um, and since then, if you, if you want to, I don't know, is Alaska greater ranges? Would you say it'll, Alaska it'll, is greater ranges? It'll do not? for the, we said expedition history. Expedition so. history. Okay, so including those two trips, I've now done 24 expeditions to the greater ranges. Um, first one, like I say, 1997. Um, and they've been to, to all the main countries you would think of, really, but China, Tibet, Nepal, India, Pakistan, Peru, and Alaska. And tell me about the latest one. The latest one, Mount Gonga or Minyakonka. Uh, but Gonga is, I think, what the locals call it. Um, the latest one, the last one, the 24th, the one that I needed to convince me that enough is enough, um, 7,556 metres, the third highest mountain in the world outside the Himalayas and the Karakoram, um, very much off the radar of most climbers. The, the, I think it's the farthest eastern, that's the biggest, highest, mountain it's like in the eastern range of the tibetan plateau it, it is actually china it's in sichuan region um it's just this massive massive mountain that just comes from nowhere really and just like launches up into the sky from next to nothing um it, it, even though you you drive up some pretty hairy roads to a point and then you only walk in for a day it felt so far removed, it was crazy. Um, and yeah, no, it's only got one route up it by a very long ridge, which I, it's, uh, I think it's like the northeast ridge. Could be the northwest, but I think it's northeast. Although, no, I think it's while we were there, so a couple of guys did a slightly alternative on, on the northwest ridge, I think, as well. Um, but it, it, it's literally only climbed from one direction, one side. And the side we were going into, of course, had never been. <laughs> Typical Ramson sort of outing had never been. Nobody had ever, I think Henry Barber tried to get in there years and years ago, but 
as far as I know, that's the only time anybody's ever gone up this valley and tried to get through this crazy icefall to get onto the base of the south face, which was pretty massive. We'll come on to that. Tell yeah. me about Ramsden. Ramsden. Um, very, very... From Pudsey in Yorkshire, which he's very proud of, I think, even though he escaped it because it's meant to be very rough. Um, I was reading a load of books. Have you, have you heard of a guy called David Peace, a no. writer? He wrote... So there was a, a trilogy of films on Channel 4 called The Red Riding... Uh, trilogy of films that were brilliant films but they come from a quartet of books from a, a writer called David Peace and I took all four of them out with me not 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 easy reading <laughs> about loads of death and and paedophiles and things <laughs> crazy but but it's all about Pudsey it's all got Pudsey in where Paul's from and it's uh, so it's pretty rough I think Pudsey but I might be speaking unfairly as I've never been there before but Paul's from Yorkshire, very, I think very proud of being Yorkshire, very working class upbringing. You know, it's like four, four Beale Doors he's been awarded for, three of them were with things with Mick Fowler, one of them was with me in Tibet a couple of years ago. Uh, very, very strong and driven. One of the most, I think he's, you know, people in the know know who Paul is, but um, very underrated, under the radar, world-class mountaineer that, that is British and nobody really knows about him. So how did the two of you end up on a plane to China together? Uh, well, like I said, Paul and myself, had, we'd met each other once before a long time ago, but... Paul contacted me in 2016 and wanted to go somewhere and eventually I agreed and we went and we had a really, I was going to say a really good time, but <laughs> uh, we had a successful time, if you class success as summit in a, a very rarely climbed mountain by a new route. Um, but just go to Tibet alone, I, I, by all accounts, was a, a, a pretty special thing because not many people get granted permits to go to Tibet, uh, to Tibet and climb. So that was that was how, and we spent, I don't know, what did we spend four or five weeks together on that trip and um, had a good, good time sort of thing. And so I agreed to do another trip because I'm just, I'm, you know, it's just getting to the point where I just really, really have done enough. I'm 52, 53 in a month's time and I get quite superstitious. <laughs> Not wanting to get too deep and dark straight away, but um, about how much time I've spent in the mountains and how many things I've tried. And, and I know so many people that have died now, especially in the last several years. And you just, I, I don't know, I think you get to a point in life, or I've got to a point in my life where I'm starting to think, well, when, when is it going to happen to me? And so I, I'm trying my best to get out of it. And I don't think the Tibet trip was the best to get out of it because it was too successful, too much good fun, too, 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 good a, too big a high at the end of it. Um, too many people contacted me and wanted me to do stuff, which is very good for your ego. And... and and so I, I needed a, a big fail 
but there's footage of you at the end of the Tibet <laughs> trip saying, I'm never, ever, ever doing this again. Yeah. Self-shot footage. Yeah. So why, why did you change your mind? It was too, it was just, uh, why did I change? Uh, it does, you know, you can't, you can't get over the fact that if you're into doing that sort of thing, it happens so, it, it, it's, it's, for me, anyway, for me, not for Paul, Paul's, Paul's pretty successful, but for me, it happens so little, that, that success of a, a such a, such a, a thing like that, and it, it gives you, it does give me such a great, like, feeling, um, and I could just finish it at that, but. I could just say that's it and that's enough, but it isn't because it also gives you credibility. It gives you a big high when you get all these emails from people praising you and saying, well done, and can you write us this and can you write us that and, and can you do me this film and can you do me that film? And, and it makes, makes you feel pretty good about yourself and totally the wrong reason to want to do it again. But as somebody who's dedicated his life now to climbing and writing it's a great opportunity as well and so there's loads of different reasons to want to do it or want to feel that again to what extent do you think there's an expectation for you to go on a big expedition and get another peel door uh is that a motive i don't know whether it's my own expectation it's certainly a motive it's part of what elite mountaineers do. Yeah, although I don't consider myself as an elite mountaineer. I'm a climbing bum who writes. Um, yeah, yeah, as a sponsored climber, it's what I'm sponsored. I'm, and, I, and I get money, not loads, but I, I, I don't live on a lot, but what I get makes a big difference in my life and it certainly plays on my mind to kind of go, well, I'm not doing any more of that because then I think, well, I'm not going to, I'm going to get dropped. And so it definitely, definitely plays a big part. Not, no, it plays, it plays a part for sure. Um, so where did it start with Gonga when you got them, you know, how did Paul get in touch? And how oh, did he feel? actually didn't. It started with me contacting him and saying, okay, I'll do another. <laughs> what a knob. <laughs> Well, no, I, yeah, I just thought it was, I really enjoyed, I, I enjoyed the whole trip, actually. I really enjoyed the trip. I really enjoyed, I enjoy, I really do enjoy, you know, if we, not to go away from the dark side of things for a minute, I really enjoy being absolutely knackered, wasted, but having done something like that. It's been a big part of my life for, a, what are we, 97? So how many years is that? It's a lot of years. Yeah, and I was climbing before that, you know, so I started climbing a few years before that. So it's been a big part of my life and a big driving thing in my life. And so it's very difficult to kind of go, you know, I'm not going to go back. And especially after such a... Like, it was, you know, it, it's great. I love lying there, being absolutely knackered and lying there. But I like being, I like lying there 
I also like it's 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 so uh, it's so such a crazy feeling because I like lying there knowing I'm safe. After, I like lying there knowing I'm going to eat some nice food. I like lying there being warm. I like lying there being safe and and having these things around me. Now, in some respects, that that that's a terrible reason. To go and do something Why like that. Why is that a terrible reason? What's wrong with that as a reason? Because you should be able to... I was going to say if you were a normal person, but that's... I don't like that word. If you were... I don't know. I, I can only speak for myself. If I was a well-balanced person, <laughs> I could probably enjoy life and then things without having to do that. And I think now I'm older and I think I've, I've lived through this and got to this point, I think I do really enjoy, I, and I can appreciate this life. But then something comes along like the Tibet thing and it kind of goes, whoa, this is amazing. And, but then it, these things suddenly become brighter and become more in focus and you, and you appreciate them even more for that short period and it's it's a good for me per, i find that a really find it a good feeling um i don't know if it's the right reason to go and risk your life anymore so before we talk about whether or not you really are stopping or mm. going again etc tell me about mount gonga and the trip where did it start what did you do what was the point that you thought you were going to turn around? You know, tell me about the trip. Okay. Um, so we went, we, we, we got there. Immediately we couldn't go in, we couldn't walk in the way everybody, because it, it, it's like what we didn't know was, is there's quite a lot of, the Chinese people go there and they trek and they trek right through where we had our base camp and go up to like um, Gonga base camp. And then they try this 5,900 metres. Some, some people do. Some people just go to them. And, 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 and they kind of trek up there. Well, we couldn't do that because the bridges had all washed away. And they were rebuilding them, but they hadn't. They still couldn't do it. So we couldn't take the horses. So we, had, we went in to this little village, landed in a car. This little village, and the next morning we had to drive. We had to walk up to the monastery, which is normal walking. And then when you drop down from the monastery, we then had to go over the top of these 5,000 metre hills. Like from, from 2,000 metres, so we went from 2,000 metres in a day over these 5,000 metre hills to drop down to come back into the valley in this other way. This was day one. And we got there, it just it was going dark. We lost the liaison officer and the coop because they decided to go down this hill in the mist the wrong way. We followed the horsemen, we were shouting them, they carried on. And <laughs> we thought we'd lost them. We thought they'd got fallen into the river and been washed up. <laughs> this is like day one. But we eventually got to base camp and, and what we were intending to do was, so then the base camp's here, 4,100 metres, and we were going to go up this valley that very few people have been up and try and get onto the south face, which starts at 5,700 metres, which we didn't know at the time because nobody had been up there. There's no, it wasn't even any full pictures of the face. We, we didn't know at all what we were going into. Um, and we were hoping to like do a route up the south face, a new route, 
summit and then either come down the same way or do the standard route down which is a two-day ridge um, and so that's what we were hoping to do it snowed every day for the first th every day for the first three weeks every day it snowed and when you say snowed I assume you mean some of it it wasn't it wasn't like total expedition stopping snow but it was for several hours of every day or through the night there was there was snow not like mega dumping but there was snow and when it snows like that in the valley at 4,000 meters it snows generally a lot more higher up and uh, so that played a significant part on what happened um, we carried on through all the snow and we acclimatized up to 5,700 meters by going through it took us three days to get to the base of the face and two two acclimatization trips the walk in the walk up the valley was just it, it felt it was a big approach mass we should have gone and put an abc in we needed a bigger team really and we should, we needed like a few few a bigger team people probably trying different things to establish an abc because it was such a long way in a like 1600 meters of ascent just from base camp to the base of the route and there was just me and paul and once we kind of started walking out there we were, you know there's no helicopter rescue there's no phone signal we have no sat phone there's nothing and it felt so far out there and you had to go through this icefall that was kind of like i christened the death icefall because it changed all the time and covered our tracks with ice avalanches and to get to the base of the face and on a few occasions we were up there and then it dumped loads of snow and you just think all i was thinking was is god we're gonna get trapped up here paul didn't seem to bother much too much about it because he's like we'll be fine and he fell down loads of holes loads of holes coming as we came back through on the second time just all over and it was knackering it was so knackering and it was so far to get back to base camp for those that don't know what do you mean he fell down loads of hops like what's involved? like so you joined together on a rope going through this crazy icefall that nobody had ever we were the first people ever let's establish that to get to the base of this face and to even like take a picture of it um the whole face bruce norman has taken i think a long distance one and um tom um i can't say tom surname the japanese guy who takes all really brilliant pictures has taken a long distance one from way, way, way back from the cob. But we're the only people to see this whole face and get through this icefall. So that's that's kind of like the, the level this was at straight away before you're even getting on the climb. And this icefall was very, it was dangerous. So the holes, it was full of seracs, like big, big, like fall down, kind of <laughs> hanging in space sort of holes. And because it snowed so much the second time we were up, well, in the first time it snowed so much actually, but we didn't get quite high enough, right on the level beneath the face. So that snowed loads and we bailed a day early because there was so much snow. Paul's out front, because Paul's like a homing pigeon and he's very good at that sort of thing and he's stronger than me. So I'm just like, push him out front. And he's just like, so all the holes, all the slots are covered and he's just going down them all. But because I've got him on quite a tight rope, I'm being able to hold him and he's just like going into like a 
up to his waist or something and jumping out off them. And, and the second time there was even more snow and it, and it was just crazy. He was just like poof, down. And, and this ice, you know, this ice fall was so serious. Um, and I was, I was like, you know, it was, I was actually, because I can't remember how to do like these crevasse rescues. And, and it's like, what were you, two of us, middle of there, nobody's coming for us. And like, I'm thinking, well, brilliant. Paul's gonna like be hanging there. I'm gonna not be able to do anything. And we're just gonna sit there for days. He's not little, is he? And he's not little, no. <laughs> he's bigger than me. <laughs> That's just around his belly. Um, but yeah, but uh, it's all very stressful. Just and this is, this this isn't even getting on the climb. Uh, it's all very stressful. Just what, being up what, there. What we're we talking time-wise on this death, death. So a day, floor? a day. So we we spent we spent over both times we spent about a day getting through it, going up. Um, and then, but coming the back down, we could get all the way back down from, from underneath the face, we could get all the way back down to our base camp. And that took from about eight in the morning till five in the afternoon. Um, and, but getting back absolutely knackered. And these <laughs> are just wreckies. These are wreckies. Yeah, this is a wrecky. This is just acclimatization. And so how are you feeling as you're walking up this thing? What's going through your head? Um, actually going through my head a lot was, was Paul Nunn was 52 years old when he died of a Serac fall. <laughs> and that was going through my head a lot. I'm 52 and, and Paul Nunn was, he's one of these quite inspirational characters from when I was getting into all this and what have you. And, you know, and. Paul, basically, it was a total surprise. He, he was, it, it was like you're under this on coming. He was coming back down, I think, from making a successful ascent of a mountain in Pakistan. Can't remember the name, and literally, you had to cross underneath a Serac for like ten or fifteen minutes, and it went and it killed him. And I think Paul Lund was, for me personally, he was one of these had been doing so much all his life. He was indestructible. And all of a sudden he's dead. And I was thinking a lot of Paul Nunn. And, and I, I've become very superstitious over the last few years. And, and it, play, it play, played on my mind a lot. Played on my mind being stuck up there. Played on my mind Paul falling down a, a crevasse and not being able to do anything about it. Um, played on my mind having been killed by Sirakfall. And what, what this, it, this is before you're getting on this route yeah. that's 1,800 metres. So you have to do two days. We've got it down to two days, but 1,600 metres of ascent from, from base camp, two days through, go through this death ice fall to get to the base of the face, to then strap it onto this 1,800 metre face that goes up to 7,500 metres, that then you have to get two days off coming down a ridge. And um, <laughs> So as you're walking up, thinking about possibilities what's this doing to your motivation to it doesn't do a lot for my motivation if i'm honest because <laughs> um, i'm not a psychopath um, <laughs> and but does it always feel like that no 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 this it, it, this it, you know what what ever possessed me to go on this trip in a way with 
Paul, where it's the hardest thing I've ever tried in my life. And I'm now at the point where I'm less fit than I've ever been for years. And I'm old, old I'm 50, 52, so I'm old, I'm old. And all of a sudden I'm strapping it onto this world-class objective, the hardest thing I've ever tried in my life. <laughs> what, what was that all about? And, and, and the thing that it's all about is, is, is one is ego, two is it's, it does give you this amazing experience that if you live through, you can lie down and go, wow, for a while until that wears off. Three, it, it, it adds to my ability to make money and survive, which is bollocks, totally the wrong thing. There's an irony in that. <laughs> putting yourself in that situation so that you can make money and survive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is, yeah. It's a collection of things. It's a collection of things. Some are, some are good, some are not so good. And I... I, I, it'd be very easy for me to say anybody who goes to the mountain feels that way, but I, I don't. I don't think they do. But I think there's more of it that goes on than people will admit to, or they even believe themselves, because they're lying to themselves a lot of the time. Why? Why? Why what are they, they lying? What, what are, they... are they saying to themselves, and why are they lying to themselves? Why are they in denial, or what are they? Uh, why? Well, why are they in denial? I don't know. You... It's 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 a good question. Why? But why do people? Why are people like that? Why mountaineers? What is it? I think you. I don't know. Why do people take crack cocaine? Well, because they're addicted to it, and because their <laughs> mates said it was a good idea at the start. <laughs> and then throw in, throw in. Actually, it can be life enhancing. It can be. It it can give you this amazing life, or it can give you the the euphoria for a very short period in your life. It can totally play on your ego and 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 like give you this. You know, it it. it can give you all of these things as well. It's not illegal. Could you not get the same kick from doing a big bike ride? Uh, I do get a kick from bike ride, actually. I get quite a buzz from bike rides, but it, it certainly doesn't give you that, that kind of kick. I'm sure, you know, if I was good enough to go and do the Tour de France and you could win that, well, maybe that's different again, but we're not talking about that, are we? We're talking about me cycling around to Beth Gellert on the hippie's bike. <laughs> Which does give me quite a buzz. I push pretty hard, but it doesn't give you that much of a buzz. It also doesn't give you the ego thing where people are contacting you and you're not being asked to do talks. And, and Unless all that you win the thing. Tour de France. Unless you win the Tour de France. Although I was just reading recently, I read something yesterday about Bradley Wiggins and he reckoned it kind of in some respects has ruined his life. <laughs> right, well... I have to go and interview him. Yeah. <laughs> hey. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So let's get back to Gonga. So you did two recce's. They didn't necessarily go well. No, they, they kind of we got we did them okay. They went all right. We got up, we only got up to five thousand seven hundred meters, and we spent two days up at five thousand seven hundred meters under the face. Had a look at it, but it's not the sort of thing that you want to look at. Be like even Paul said, normally you would, it would be like you go and do a recce on an opposite somewhere. You get higher, and he would be able to like watch the face, even draw a topo really give it some like time we didn't have that opportunity why not because of the difficulty in getting to it and the fact that we didn't know anything about it and nobody knew anything about it beforehand and it's such a big effort just getting up there and getting through the icefall and dangerous that you didn't want to kind of and there was just nothing else really around that you could we could have gone and probably got on the standard route which would have got us up to about five, eight on the ridge and then pushed it out. But we needed to put the time in going up this valley. Is there an ethical issue with that or not? With, does it feel a bit like abseiling in and then onsighting something? Or no, would not you, at all. Yeah. I, wouldn't have had, I wouldn't have had any problem at all if it had been perfect weather and we, we knew we could get through here. If we could have got through there, got to the base of the face in a single push without the snow, without the big effort, and then come back down without like properly knacking ourselves. And then we could have said, right, well, we're up to far. Let's go up on the standard route and go and climb up that as far as we can. And then come back down, which will give us knowledge of that as well. That would have been, you know, that, that would have been in a way a perfect scenario, but it just, everything was just, it's just such a big effort. And it was snowing loads in the first three weeks while we were trying to get acclimatised. And the effort to just go and do that would have been pretty big. And, and we needed to kind of get through to see the face. On that first acclimatisation, we didn't see the face at all. It was just clouded in all the time. That must have been ominous <laughs> itself. <laughs> so we didn't even know there was a line. We didn't know what, so we had to go in that second. And by the time we'd gone in the second time, you kind of committed so much to going in and finding a way and getting through and getting to see the face and having a look at it um, and desensitising in a way. You need to desensitise to kind of get used to your surroundings before you go, right, well, we're going to commit it onto a 7,500 metre mountain now up this face, this 1,800 metre face. And so we needed to, we needed to, we had to kind of commit to that, that way, not doing that. Um, too easy to too easy in a way to say people say it all the time oh you know conditions people have been saying it to me oh well you know the, the weather was a bit I hear the weather was shit or and it'd be very easy for me to just turn around and say yeah the weather was crap conditions weren't good we didn't do it 
But actually, I'm 90% convinced that everything could have been perfect. We'd have got on the face, we wouldn't have done it. I'm too old, not good enough, too committed. So before we come on to the face itself, um, if I understand right, you, you did the second recce and came yeah. back down to base camp. Yeah. What's that like? What did you do in base camp? How long were you there? Base camp was great. <laughs> we had Mr. Pandelier's an officer who was a real character and he was just great, great. He was a great person, actually. And in all the trips I've done, when it comes down to having a liaison officer, he, he, was, he was brilliant. He was really good fun. How so? Uh, what was good about him? He was, he was just a cool guy, you know, he was cool. He was, he was just a laugh. He listened to it like, he, he's, he's older than, he's 57 and he, he looked like younger than, he looked really quite young, but he was cool. He listened to like all, um, like Western music, which kind of surprised you a bit, but it was all like, it was really like, he listened to loads of like Motown and stuff. And it was, it was so cool, <laughs> so funny. And he was like, he smoked loads. And then he was like, he was now an alcoholic. <laughs> they used to drink this like 52% rice wine every dinner and every evening. And I, I started calling it, what was it, medicine or something. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to have my medicine. And, he was, yeah, so, and then Mr. Chong, the cook, was ex-forces. He was a bit serious, actually, with his chopper. <laughs> Not his chopper, his chopper. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been scary with his chopper as well I don't know luckily he wasn't luckily he wasn't but, uh, uh, but yeah he was but, but it, so it was quite cool being there and hanging out with them and uh, pretty comfortable but do you, you do you manage to put it out of your mind you know, you've just done two recce's you're back in base camp with those guys it, it doesn't last for long not for me anyway um, Paul, Paul seems to cope all pretty well with it and he seems to be pretty level headed with it all and I think there was more going on this time than definitely than the previous time. And I think maybe it was just all my talk of people dying in superstition that infected Paul as well. But, but so when we were going back down, I was basically saying to Paul, right, I need a minimum of three to four days because I, I was knackered. And so for the first couple of days, it's fine and I can relax and whatever, but then it starts like this, this, this like insipid, dread that we were going back up there was definitely I've, and and I started I just something I've got better at over the years is like breaking it down saying okay well the first day we're just going to go to there and that's fine then but then you have to go through this fucking icefall and this icefall was just death on a stick and Paul was like going, oh well you've been through things like this before and I was like yeah I have Paul and <laughs> probably didn't enjoy it then but I was a lot younger and I was more stupid but to what extent is it skill? I mean, the, the face is a different beast, but to what extent is the ice ball skill or luck? Luck. 100%? Yeah, near enough. When you're going through things like that, it's, it, it's like a flip of a coin. Yeah, so the more you go, the more you... It, you know, you could be going through a lot worse. Let's not overplay it. The first time I went through it, I thought, okay, it's not too bad. But then... When we came back down under all the snow, it was like, ooh, and like dropping down holes and things. But then the second time we went up and all our tracks had been covered by ice avalanches from collapsing seracs, suddenly then I was like, holy shit, this, actually this ice fall is moving a lot. 
and then it's again it's moved it's changed again when you come back down then you go back up and even more tracks have been obliterated and you kind of go actually this this is really really dangerous um and so there's there's a lot there's not a lot of skill involved in staying alive going through them things if you're operating at a level where you're going on an expedition to that part of the world you know i guess it yeah it's luck when you're actually walking through the icefall itself hmm. so what about the attempt then well there wasn't one did you not even try we i woke, didn't realize that no we woke up we woke up we had so so it was a two days approach we had we had we, we took eight days food with us we had two days of two days approached so we had six days food left we had about nine days overall where we before we had to walk out and drive out get to Chengdu and catch the plane well, that was probably like 12 days. So we had, we had basically, we had like 10 days left. And we went in, we, we, we went in for two days, we walked in, we had six days food in our bags. We, packed, we got them all ready under the face. We went to bed and we woke up to complete whiteout and snowing. And we didn't have the food in our bags to kind of hang out for a day or so up there and wait it out to see what happened. We had to get on the face because it was going to take a minimum of six days to climb at least maybe seven to the summit. We had six days food and then it was going to take two days to get off it. And you only realise this once you get to the bottom on your second recce. And well, we knew it was probably going to be an overall 10-day outing from base camp to base camp, minimum. We knew that, yeah, after kind of after the second recce. But, yeah, we weren't going, we didn't, we knew, even before we got there, we, like, we both experienced enough to know that this, that this was going to be massive. So what's the, because I've obviously never done anything like that, what's mm. the logic behind only taking six days' food? You can't carry anymore. We, we took eight Sorry, yeah. And obviously you've got the gas as well. So. And you've got, we had five, five cylinders of gas between the two of us. Um, five cylinders of gas, eight days food. And even then the food was down to like 400, uh, like a meal was going to be 400 uh, calories. Yeah. So it's nowhere near, I mean, you're, so, you know, you, you're operating at a deficit from day one. You're operating, yeah. We're yeah. operating at a deficit on the bloody... Walking. On the approach. <laughs> yeah. And then you're going to strap it on an 1,800 metre route that tops out at 7,500 metres that has another two days to come off it. So you woke up in the morning. White out, snow. Paul, Paul turned to me and goes, oh, it's snowing, it's white out, how sight are you? And I went, not very. And he went, no, I don't think I am either. I said, good, let's get down. <laughs> Was it that simple? <laughs> yeah. No fighting, no argument. No messing. Paul beat himself up a bit, but on the way down, and you could see he was a little bit, but I don't think, I'm pretty sure, if you speak to Paul now or you ask him, I'm pretty sure he would be saying it was the right decision. <laughs> it sounds like the right decision. It was the right so decision. So what goes through your head in that moment? Is it just, get me out of here? Me, I was kind of, like I say, I, I've, I'm pretty sure I've reached the point where I was kind of going, I'm glad to be. Well, even then, I couldn't go 
I'm glad to get out alive because we had to go through the ice fall. <laughs> As he say. So, so even then I wasn't like, because we, we kind of went, we kind of went, okay, enough's enough. I wish you can. So we said, let's get out of here. But then, even then, it took us we were through the ice wall and back below. And I, 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 we, we both, I said, we did that a bit prematurely, didn't we? And Paul was like, yeah. And we shook hands again then. And we said, right, I think we're going to live now. <laughs> yeah. So how did the, you know, when we've talked before, we always end up talking about this, but what's the emotional journey? What changes in your head? You know, when do you start thinking, oh, maybe we should have, or... Does that not happen? Maybe or? you should have, what, pushed have harder or yeah. have a go? I think in previous trips in my life, I'll, I've definitely had that. I have had that, for sure. And I know for a fact in previous trips, it, we could have. And there could have been... I, I, I definitely... I can think of one straight away. I'm not going to probably name it because it wasn't anything really my decision that we came off. It was somebody else's decision and... I personally think we could have had a, a right good go and we shut off a bit more, tried a bit harder. But, you know, if, if one of you isn't into it, there's nothing you can do. And you should respect the other person who you're tied on with and you should come down. That's all there is to it. Um, but there, there, are, so there, are, there are only um, there are a few, a couple of things probably that I've tried. That, but mo most of the things I've tried, I think I've tried pretty bloody hard. And I've had several attempts at things and, you know, really given it a big effort. Even even on that one thing that I've talked about then, gave it quite an effort. But I think, you know, um, so it, it does. But on this occasion, I had absolutely no problem at all coming down. How did you feel walking out? I felt I felt euphorious. <laughs> it was great. There were birds tweeting, and the trees were green, and and there was like this like amazing moss hanging from the trees, and the sun was shining, and it was lovely. It was a lovely day. It was great to walk out because <laughs> I certainly thought there might be opportunity, might be a time when I what wouldn't. And a lot of that also that's that kind of stress. It wasn't just because I'm at this point in my life and I'm at this certain age and I don't feel fit enough to try that. Like, don't get me wrong, I don't think there'd have been a problem if Paul had have, like, found, found us a 6,500 metre mountain to go and try a technical route up. I, I, we'd have, I, as long as the weather had been fine, we'd have, we'd have given it a good go and we'd have probably done it. I have no problem about that. This, you've got to get it in your mind that this was a very seldom climb 7,500 metre mountain in the middle of nowhere with just two of us getting on it, going up a valley where nobody had ever been before through a death icefall, miles away from base camp. And it was the kind of the wrong approach for really for what we were trying, but nobody knew about it. So in some respects, if, if, if Paul had got us a six and a half thousand metre technical mountain like some of the things he'd done in the past with Mick, we'd have probably done it and it'd be great. But, but in some respects, that, that wouldn't have done the job because the job was, is I want to finish doing this while I'm still alive. I want to enjoy my life. Yeah. <laughs> and, and finishing on a bad one is qu quite easy. 
to go, okay, I've probably done enough of this. I've, I think I've done enough of this now. Whereas finishing on a really good one like Nang and Tagla that two years before wasn't good because then it it feeds the, feeds all this stuff that keeps you going. Yeah. So when, I can't remember exactly what you said, but when you emailed me when you got back, you said that you were looking forward to chatting because lots had changed. Yeah, I think I'm looking more and more... I've, I've I'm 52, nearly 53, and so many people that I know have died. And it just starts, you know, as you get older, you, and I know statistics don't, I'm told by people who know about statistics, it doesn't work like this, but I can tell them that the more you put yourself in a dangerous situation, the more chance you have of dying. And I don't give a shit about their statistics. That's true. It can't be anything other than if you keep going and going, putting yourself in this situation, at some point, something is possibly going to happen. And it has happened to so many people I would call friends. And, and it just starts to play on your mind more and more as you get older and, and you put yourself in this position. And I'm at the point now. I, I, I think I was talking to somebody in the climbing wall last night and he was saying, yeah, it's like, weird that he understood because I said pretty sure I've done 24 of these bloody things and some are, most of them I've tried really hard on and a lot of them have been pretty dangerous and pretty out there and very very like close to being world-class objectives that's why I failed I think <laughs> nearly all of them but it doesn't stop the danger and it doesn't stop you trying really hard and pushing to the limit and I'm just, just at the point where I feel pretty happy with what I've done, how I am, who I am, where I am. And I think it just comes to a point where I don't need to, I'm happy. I think it, it's also probably something to do with like being happy in your life anyway, around, you know, as well. You know, that helps a lot. To what extent, this might sound really over the top and you can laugh at me, to what extent do you think you've maybe got survivor guilt? Uh, I think it pro uh, probably at one point in my life I might have had a little bit of that. I don't think I've got survivor guilt at all. Um, I don't even know what... Can you give me the definition of survivor no, guilt? No, I can't. It just makes me think... I, I shouldn't use this analogy, but it makes me think of soldiers. It makes me think of people that come home after a long, hard tour whose friends have died. They've done mm. the same thing as them. They come home and they just think, why was it him and not me? You know, his family have had to go through that. I'm mm. left here. Mm. Do you experience the same thing as a mountaineer? I'm not... Sh I think it's complete... I think it's quite a different thing using one yeah. as a metaphor yeah, yeah. for the other for the like the, the army soldier thing because I don't know enough about that but it, it, they're going they're doing that for a very different reason with a, a, a privileged a privileged person's going to the mountains yeah it makes me think of the comrade anchor Alex Lowe thing of, you know comrade anchor talks about how he he doesn't understand why it was Alex and not him and I, I wonder if there's the same thing with you with Jules maybe or because to get so a little bit deep, have you been in situations where people have died on the expedition that you've been on? I've actually been very, very fortunate. And I have never 
experience death in the mountains firsthand and I never want to <laughs> and and I've been I'm very fortunate for that it's just suddenly people disappear yeah you know people who I know you know uh, yeah and yeah so how are you looking at things now life wise climbing wise life wise more climbing wise I, I, you know I could easily I could easily talk about the big mountains and mountaineering because people rave about it and I could easily go I could be quite cynical about it now but it's very easy to be cynical about something when you've experienced it for 25 years of your life and you've, and you've gone through those highs. So it would probably be unfair for me to say to people, you shouldn't do that. But I would say what, what I would say now that I probably wouldn't have at one point in my life is I would say you should go into it with your eyes very, very open and you should, and I, and, and you should take take heed that you might not come back. And I would also say, you're not gonna come back a hero, even if you succeed and you do a brilliant new route on the map. You're not a fucking hero. Do you not you... think Alex Honnold has come back a hero? <laughs> Alex isn't a hero. Alex, I've, you know, I've met him and I found him quite an interesting person. Alex has mental health issues. And, and in some ways, we're all supporting that and... It's like the article, isn't it? Well, it is, it is. And we are all, we're all like supporting his mental health issues. We're not treating him. We're we're encouraging him. So when somebody sends you an email or comments on your blog saying, you know, a credible mountaineer, someone you respect, who you know is a bit of a, I won't say a hero, a talented alpinist, says, Nick, please can I have all the photos from Gonga and any advice on going? Are you going to turn around and say, please don't go? It's a, it's a. No, I would be complete because I've actually a, a friend of mine who I spoke to a little a few days ago even and I said to him I can give you a, he didn't ask me about it I just said if you want a world class objective that I think you possibly will be good enough to go and try I can tell you I can give you the whole facts about this but I wouldn't I wouldn't sort of fluff it up at all I would say you're going to risk your life going through that icefall you have to decide whether you want to do that and I know obviously, you know, you don't have any part to play in whether or not he does go and whether or not he does um, get hurt or come back yeah. successfully. But when that person says, I am going to go and do it, and they get on a plane, are you going to be affected by that in any way? Uh, well, I would be. I'd be very, I'd be concerned if that one person, because I'm friends with him and I like, if, if he then went and tried this thing, I probably wouldn't feel in some ways responsible yeah but there will be people you know I'm hoping to write something now about this trip and about my feelings and about the way I feel about like my life has changed 
raining quite well, isn't it? Just hammering it down. How's that going to affect your, your recording? That's all right, don't worry. It's so, ready. Yeah. Well, we're in North Wales, aren't we? What we can are. you expect? <laughs> so, so the way... Uh, kind of lost my thread a bit by the rain, but... So if he... if For him personally... People will... When I write about this and put pictures out there, without a doubt, because... People, people will go and try this mountain and this face. They will because it's world class and in some way. But um, there's no doubt about it. It's that it's it's what we live with nowadays because because people follow. They they kind of see pictures and and rightly or wrongly they don't they don't go and try things that that they don't know about or people can't give them a load of information on. Why is that? I'm really interested in that. I think it's, I think, I think it's the sign of the times, isn't it? I think a lot of imagination has gone out of people. How about that? There's, there's something that will wind people up. But I think a lot of people lack imagination nowadays because if they don't get, they, they, they don't want to go to Scotland unless they know a route's totally in condition has been done a lot of the time. They don't want to go to the Alps unless it's got a trail broken into the base of a north face and it's been done several times and it's in squeaky, squeaky amazing condition. They don't go to the greater ranges unless they know, unless something's been tried, oh, shall I say, what, 30 times? Um, it's not contentious at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and it's got a massive, massive reputation that's going to enhance their rep, their personal reputation and fluff their ego up even more. Um, there are people out there, of course, who still do go and try things that not a lot is known about. But after Nangentagla, it's amazing the amount. I'm sure I'm sure Paul had a lot more. The people emailing me, basically wanting me to like serve it, serve them the range on a dish and give them so much, in, like loads of information about how to do things and how to get in there and what else there is there and show them pictures and show them what, you know, it's like for fuck's sake people, just go and try, just go and have a bit of a poke at something. And, and, and Is it and, generational or are there young people who I, are still doing what? This, there will be young, young people still, obviously, of course. Is it gonna be, it's going to be all over, it's going to be all ages and there'll be people who are still try and in fact I know there are people still young people trying to do things that are that not people don't really know about and very little is known about and they probably know that they're going to go and fail but they'll have a poke anyway um, and then there are older people who want it all serving on the plate but there are I think I think it is a an, an internet thing that there is so much information out there now, people have become accustomed to having information and wanting information and don't feel things are either worth it or safe enough or credible enough unless they have all this information. So to be mean to you, yeah. how do you justify the fact that you're contributing to that? Um, I can't. I'm totally contributing to it. Um, I I live with confliction. I what's what what was the thing that we were talking about earlier on? The um, dissonance. 
the dissonance. Was it? Uh, yeah, it was. Um, I wish I had it still. Cognitive open dissonance. Cognitive dissonance. It, it is that. It's. It's more than that, actually. So I do have cognitive dissonance as well, which for those of you that don't know what it is, because I didn't until about two hours ago, until I looked it up on Wikipedia. Um, it's kind of when you live with, in some ways, with a, a very strong belief, but something comes along and questions that belief and makes you kind of a bit stressed or stirred up inside. That's in very simplified. And I, I, I think I cope pretty well with with that because I am more open but I think that's a getting older thing or a thing I'm very I very I look at myself a lot and question a lot of what I do so but I do also live with quite a lot of confliction and yeah I am part of that and I would love in some respects now in my life not to be part of it, in a way. It's not that simple though, is it? But it isn't that simple because it's the life I've kind of stole, I've set out for myself now. And I, the w only way I would say I cope with it is by trying to keep it under control to a level where I'm happy. Your benchmark. My benchmark. Which means jack shit. Too. Well, it's set by you, isn't it? Set by me, yeah. Which, which, and, and people will call me a hypocrite and people will also go, he's not doing enough. Sure. And as long as I can wake up in the morning and I feel reasonably happy with my decisions and choices, I think that's my answer to your question. And my final question, because we can read about, you know, you are going to write the blog by the time this goes online. I don't know if I'll write a blog. I'm trying oh. to... Well, no, because I'm trying to write a piece for a magazine so I get paid. Ah, right, well. <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll definitely put something on my blog, but it won't be anything like this. It'll probably be, we went, we saw, we failed, we came back. Well, there's the magazine piece. Here's a couple I'll, of pictures. I'll link the magazine piece to this so that people can read the uh, the conclusion when yeah. you finally if, write if, if, it I, if I can get it published. Because <laughs> um, it'd be dark. Yeah, some people like that. Yeah. Some of us. Um, final question I've asked you this every time I've interviewed you for the past five years maybe are you going to go again I'm pretty sure you know what you've got to look at is, is you've got to look at go again what, what do you mean by go again go where again on expedition so I I love doing massive, big things, thousand meter routes in like the Canadian Rockies, in the Alps. I've never been to Patagonia. There's like a big ice, ice line there that's waiting a second that I'd love to try. I certainly have no intention on not doing that style of climbing, of not doing, of, of stopping that. I, I will go, because it's so, Brilliant, I love it. Where you do loads of climbing, really physical, you push for 24 hours and you're back in the valley. No problem at all. Um, it, it gives me as much satisfaction that as doing like hard trad routes or, or very lowly level grade sport climbs that are at the top of my ability. But, so I've no problem with that. 
which in some respects are slight or light as much climbing as you do <laughs> in the Himalayas or whatever. But I would, I'm pretty sure I'm done for the greater ranges. I'm just getting a bit too superstitious. I have to say, you seem like you mean it a lot more. Yeah, 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 yeah. Pretty, pretty sure I'm, I'm done with that. Uh, yeah. We'll see, won't we? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. 52 is the new 35. <laughs> it bloody didn't feel it. <laughs> Feels pretty old, I'll tell you. <laughs> right, we'll leave it there. Yeah. Thanks very much. No worries. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk and you can find us and follow us on Instagram at theadventurepodcast. The podcast is produced in association with Sidetrack magazine. So for an extra adventure fix, visit sidetrack.com. The podcast is produced and distributed by Pip Saunders and Alex Hall. And as always, please um, do head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They make a huge, huge difference.